This morning we are continuing our sermon series entitled In Need of a Prophet. We are looking at the work of the prophet Elijah during the wicked days of Ahab and paralleling that to uh, the need of God's word to be present among us in our days, guiding and directing us. Uh, this morning we're concluding chapter 18 by looking at verses 41 through 46. If you'd like to look that up in your pew Bibles at the very bottom of page 353. But otherwise you may follow along with the words as found on the screen behind me. Again, from 1 Kings chapter 18, starting at verse 41. Here we read. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink. And Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel. And he bowed himself on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servants, Go up now, look toward the sea. And his servant went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And Elijah said, Go again, seven times. And at the seventh time, the servant said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And Elijah said, Go up, say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I wanted to start this morning by asking you a question. I often ask our young children. It's not looking for responses at this moment, but have you ever experienced a miracle? Had an encounter that was undescribable in any other way except for God's supernatural presence interrupting the normal activity of life and doing something so incredible it could only be described as a miracle. I've heard many stories of people that have had just such encounters where they got glimpses of angelic beings or where God answered a prayer in some totally unexpected and astounding way. And if you have stories like that, although I'm not looking for answers now, I'd love to hear them at some point in the future. Now, were you to ask me that question on a personal level, I would say that and truth be told, I don't have very many grand and great experiences. I can think of people that had cancer uh, miraculously removed after tests. Or if you've been around long enough, you can remember a story like Valvin Houghton's who... Uh, for several years ago, every week had to go in and had a lot of liquid drained from her abdomen because of problems she had with her liver. But through a transplant and through answered prayers, now instead of getting fluid drained every week, she's sitting at that keyboard leading us faithfully in worship. And much of those medical concerns have been put behind. And, and like her, I see that as a miracle from God's hand. And those are the kinds of stories that I would most often tell if I were to be asked that kind of a question. 
Well, if you were here last week and you heard the story from earlier in chapter 18 and where we are continuing, you would remember that it was without a doubt that the people had experienced a miracle on the top of Mount Carmel. There was this great battle between Elijah and the prophets of Baal, and after many hours of those hundreds of prophets wailing and crying and dancing and cutting themselves to try to get the attention of Baal, nothing happened. But then after one simple prayer of the one faithful prophet Elijah, God sent fire down from heaven, consuming not only the sacrifice, but the water-drenched altar all around it. And it was, as I said, without a doubt a miracle. As I described it last week, the events remain as one of the greatest expression of God's power and presence demonstrated in this world that the world has ever seen. And one of the reactions to that was seen in verse 39, where those that witnessed it said, the Lord, he is God, and then repeated it, the Lord, he is God. And in that, message that I preached last week, I alluded to the fact that sometimes we, a modern audience, can read those types of stories with a little bit of jealousy or envy. And we can see these powerful demonstrations of God's presence that he does at like Mount Carmel or other events in, in the Bible, and we say, why doesn't he just do that again? Wouldn't that soften so many hard hearts? Wouldn't that answer so many arrogant questions of those that deny the presence of God? Wouldn't it be wonderful if God today did something similar? And why doesn't he again now? Well, I offered a couple of answers to that question last week, but in addition to what I said about that last week, our text for this morning reminds us of the bigger picture of what was happening. To know that the fire from heaven was not the end of the story, but it was actually just a big step to the bigger end that was still to come. Because as, as incredible as, and great as fire from heaven is, there is a certain sense where fire from heaven wasn't what the people needed. They needed rain from heaven. You will recall that this whole journey with Elijah and a conflict with Ahab and his presence and their dialogue together began all the way back in chapter 17, verse 1 where God sent the prophet Elijah to say to Ahab, in and because of his wickedness and rebellion against God, that, quoting, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And that's what happened. It had been years. Over three years where throughout the land of Israel and beyond, no dew, no rain had fallen. The people were struggling and suffering as a result. But then, at the start of chapter 18, God sent Elijah to Ahab once again, and this time he was to bring the message, Go, 
Show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. And so, again, the reminder is God's given the promise that after this long drought and the famine that accompanied it, God was once again going to bring rain. But before that rain would fall, he was going to make sure and demonstrate that it absolutely was not coming because Baal finally acted and did something after a long wait, but that the rain was only coming by the word of the Lord. And so now that the falsehood of the worship of Baal had been thoroughly exposed and debunked through this great battle between the gods on Mount Carmel, it was proven that Baal was empty. Baal was non-existent, that the cries to Baal went nowhere to no one because he didn't exist but that the rain would only come by God's hand. And it was now time for the rain to come. So at the start of our text, Elijah tell Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of the rushing of rain. Now those are words of faith. They are words that are inviting Ahab to trust that the time of, of preserving food, of protecting what little resources you have left is coming to an end, that he can eat and drink freely because the water would be returning to the land. And although Ahab wasn't able at this point to hear with his physical ears the sound of rain coming because it wasn't there yet, he was hearing with the ears of faith, trusting that God's promises would be coming true. But that didn't mean that all the hard work was over. Because while Ahab goes off to eat, Elijah goes off to pray. In a posture of deep submission and devotion, Elijah gets on his knees in the very presence of God, supplicating himself, and he prays desperately. As one commentary pointed out, and I appreciate it very much, very often we get this idea of prophets like Elijah as these super prophets, these people that have this supernatural power in and of themselves, and at their very word, they're able to enact these miraculous events. But this story reveals the reality that this wasn't about Elijah and his power and strength, but actually the power that Elijah had, if he had it at all, was a power of prayer. That it wasn't at his word that these things were taking place, but it was by submitting to the will of God and trusting in his word and asking God to interact and to enact his word in this world. That is where his power came from. Elijah was a prophet of prayer, we learn. In the battle with Baal, as I mentioned already, Elijah offers up one simple prayer. And what happens? A flame from heaven comes down, burning up the altar. But now, after his first prayer, Elijah sends off his servant to look toward the sea to let him know what he sees. And his servant comes back with the report, there's nothing there. And in that word, it almost echoes that great concern of the, the earlier in the chapter when the prophets of Baal were crying out and, and there was nothing there. 
No one answered. No one heard because no one was listening. And it almost stirs up an anxiety. There's nothing there. Well, is, is God done? Had he emptied himself of the power? Is he limited in what he's able to accomplish? What's going on? And that scene repeats itself. Elijah praying, sending off his servant to go and look six times. But after each time, there's nothing. Till finally, after the seventh time, there was a new report from his servant who said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is, is rising up from the sea. And it's an interesting thing to notice in our story here that as impressive as fire from heaven was and is, in some ways it seems like it took far more energy, far more work, far more time in dedicated prayer for the rain to come than it was for fire from heaven to come. But as soon as that report is given, Elijah's reaction was to, to tell Ahab that he better get out of here. Because he's going to get stuck otherwise if he doesn't get going. And whereas when Ahab ate, Elijah prayed. Now when Ahab jumps in his chariot, Elijah starts to run. The nearly 17 miles from Mount Carmel to the city of Jezreel. And then we are told the heavens open up and a great rain starts to fall. And while that might seem like an ordinary thing, pause and imagine, as I'm sure many of us can relate, after more than three years of no water, what a joy, what a gift to see those dark clouds rolling in and you didn't care how much it was falling or how hard, what a blessing to finally let that rain fall and clean the air and bring moisture to the ground that had been cracked and dried out and have hope for the crops that had been planted in your little bit of land and that they were no longer dry. What a gift to celebrate well, going back to the story, we find out that Elijah on foot ends up beating Ahab in the chariot to the city of Jezreel. And let me offer just a glimpse of the significance of that and, and where we are headed next in our text. Uh, while we really haven't yet gotten a full description of Ahab's reaction to all of the things that had been taking place, we're getting some little glimpses of hope in our text. It's encouraging to see that when Elijah tells Ahab to do some things, go and eat or go get in a chariot, that, that Ahab actually listens. And in seeing Elijah run ahead of Ahab in front of him to the city of Jezreel, we are getting a glimpse of the way that things were supposed to be. The prophet leading the way for the king to follow. This was how God had designed it for the prophet to say, this is the path that you are supposed to follow and the king to follow behind. And so when Ahab does show up at the city of Jezreel and he sees Elijah there, it is an encouragement to know that God's presence has gone before him. But we will soon find out that Elijah is not the only one waiting for Ahab and Jezreel. But Ahab's wife Jezebel is already there. And her 
reaction to all that she hears had just taken place is going to make a major impact on Ahab's reaction. We're going to be looking at those events next, and it's going to be a, a couple of weeks before we act to actually get to that. But before we look too far ahead, I think we can learn some of the important lessons of our text for this morning. You know, in our need for a prophet, in our desire for God to show up and, and to do something in our world, to change the direction of where we see things going, we love and we celebrate when God shows up and does something absolutely incredible and undeniably miraculous. We love grand gestures of his power and might in this world that we can point to and say, see God does exist. He is alive and he is the king. And because of that, our text for this morning might just seem like a kind of tying up loose ends and, and an anticlimax to the great grand event of this battle between Baal and God on Mount Carmel. But instead, I want to point out and remind you that this is actually the climax. That this is the, the conclusion, the, the goal to which that fire from heaven was pointing. And unfortunately, in looking for and focusing on these grand miraculous events, we can often miss or overlook pretty spectacular things that aren't quite so out of the ordinary. I've reflected on this before. I don't know how many of you have ever been to uh, Big Trees State Park up in the foothills, but, but there, there's these grove of the giant redwood sequoias that are just incredible to look at, these majestic trees. But I found myself in the past commenting on the fact that while you are looking at those giant sequoias, you're overlooking other trees that if you found them anywhere else, you would be at awe at their size and their demonstration and, and their grandeur. But when they're in the presence of those giant sequoias, you don't even hardly notice them because those things are so much bigger. And I, I think that's in many ways how we can walk through life. That when we're looking only at and only for the biggest, the grandest, the greatest demonstration of God's presence in our lives, so often we can overlook and ignore the many blessings that he gives to us from day to day. In wanting to see some scenes like what took place on Mount Carmel, we assume that's what it looks like when God shows up. When we hear the story of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit coming with these great sounds and a great demonstration of the, the, the disciples speaking in tongues, we assume that is what must happen when God actually interacts with the world. But then we forget that as great as the miracle of fire from heaven was, that miracle wasn't need, that wasn't the whole point. The true miracle that took place where more prayer and longer time was needed was when God allowed the rain to fall. But the problem is we're used to rain. We see it happen all of the time, and so we dismiss the miracle as rain as unimportant or unsubstantial, not recognizing what a miracle from God that is. You see... 
The bigger issue that had remained throughout this entire story was where the hearts of the people were. That instead of looking only to God, the Lord, for all of their provisions, for all of their needs, for guidance, direction, and for that daily provision, they were directing their attention to a false idol. And they were crediting those idols and worshiping those idols in the hope of doing what only God was able to do. Because of that, they were turning from the Lord or they were forgetting about his presence and his direction in their lives. And I worry that we can do the same thing. That not only can we be tempted to overlook the regular incredible things that God does and assume that because they happen routinely, then that's no big deal. It's not miraculous. But I think we can also look past God and and look to other things to give us what we really need in life. And I've already preached on this in this series, but, but in looking for joy, we don't look to God, we look to other things. In looking for rest, we don't rest in the presence of God, we find rest in, in distractions, and, and the list could go on and on. And I think the answer to both of those needs, to overlooking the regular and looking beyond God for what we do need, The answer to both can be found in a text like James 1.17 that reminds us that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And in mentioning James, I have to recognize that at the very end of his book, James actually refers to this text. It's going to be a longer text that I'm going to read, but uh, listen along as I read from James 5, 13 through 20. In the conclusion of his book, he asks, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. But then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Like I said, that text is a little bit longer, but it is a reminder that no matter what our need is in life, be that healing, be that direction for difficult decisions, be that an opportunity to rejoice and praise God for what he has been doing, or or be that a need to have your life or the life of someone that you dearly love changed because they're walking a path of sin. That the answer to all of those needs is by turning to our God in faithful prayer of bowing ourselves in his presence and admitting, Lord, I can't control any of this, but you are the God who can and who does. 
And Elijah becomes an example of how that faithful prayer of one servant can be heard and responded to by God. And so, in looking at this text and recognizing that truth, I want to encourage us to reflect on a couple of questions. First of all, when you have a need in your life, no matter what it is, where are you turning to fulfill that need? And who are you looking to or what are you looking to in order to, to give you the things that you need from day to day? Problem is that oftentimes we only turn to God in prayer for the, the big things in our lives. And if someone's not sick or someone's not in the hospital or there's not a, a, a struggle that we're dealing with and we don't know that there's anything to be praying for or about because all we do is turn to God with those big things. But God says, I'm not just the God of those big things. I'm not just the God of Mount Carmel and fire from heaven. I'm the God of rain. I'm the God of your daily needs. So come to me and look only to me for everything that you need, not just the big stuff. But that also leads to the second point of reflection. Have we gotten so used to the ordinary blessings of God that we forget how wonderfully miraculous they truly are? Yes, behind every Mount Carmel experience, behind every healing of someone like Valvin Houghton, God is clearly at work. But he's also behind every rainstorm, every birth of a new child, every recovery from illness, every conversion story where a life is turned around and back toward the Lord, every meal we eat, all are miraculous gifts from God. And especially, don't overlook where James ended and highlighted in his text, and that's in the area of forgiveness from sins. Again, in that same way, unfortunately, we can assume, well, God forgives sins all of the time, and so it's easy for him. It's no big deal if I sin. But the reality is that that, too, is an incredible miracle, a gift from God. And so when we see ourselves or others wandering from the right path, continue to pray, continue to plead, to continue to ask, and recognize that when and if God answers those prayers, it is a great gift because that forgiveness is not easy. It is a miracle that when we sin, we are not immediately snatched up, killed, and sent to hell. But in his patience and his love and through the sacrifice of son, his son Jesus, that forgiveness is available to us. Have you seen a miracle? Maybe not some grand demonstration like power from heaven or the presence of an angelic being or something absolutely incredible. But if you have a relationship with God, you have seen many miracles every single day. Our God, again, is the God from fire from heaven, and he is the God of daily provisions of rain. Both are worthy of praise. May we never neglect to recognize God as the source of every good and perfect gift. And we, we seek to, to pray to him alone for our needs, especially our daily bread. Toward that end, let's have a word of prayer.
Father in heaven, we bow in your presence under the miracle of you hearing us, being present with us. And we confess and ask for your forgiveness when we've been willing to overlook the many ways that you are interacting with us on a day-in and day-out basis, assuming that if someone isn't getting healed or if there is no major need in our lives, then we have no major need for you. Father, I pray that we would be a people that cling to you for everything in our lives, that our confession is, Lord, I need you for everything for those daily provisions. And then, Lord, may this sermon this morning be encouragement to us to not overlook the gift of those daily provisions, to recognize and praise you for all of the, the little but incredible ways that you bless us day in and day out. Father, you have given so much to us, not the least of which is the, the hope of forgiveness from our sins through the sacrifice of Christ. And I pray that in recognizing those gifts, we would turn to you more regularly for our needs, and we would worship you more heartedly in all the many ways that you continue to provide for us. But Lord, in the end, all we can do is say thank you for the great God that you are. So as we look to you in our need, may we find you in our provisions. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.